Today, we're talking to Matt, CTO of CAI, about parenting in the age of AI, how tools like ChatGPT are being used for therapy, and more. You're listening to Joel Beasley, Modern CTO. Typically, I ignore like the the cold email people saying, hey, you know, pitching this person to come on the show, but I got yours and I remember replying to it and I was like, hmm, does he have kids? Because I've got <laughs> kids and I'm thinking about their safety and AI and all of that. And the PR person said, let me check. And he's like, yeah, he's got some daughters. And I said, oh, that's so cool. So I was hoping we could structure the conversation a little bit around that. Um, is this what you do at CAI? Well, I do a lot of things at CAI. So um, I'm at for our organization. We're we're a professional and technical services firm. So we we do a wide variety of things for a wide variety of types of customers. Within that, my responsibility I like to characterize it as I'm responsible ultimately for everything that plugs into the wall. So um, the infrastructure, security operations, our application stacks, our technical practices that deliver services to our customers, all that stuff rolls into me, which is unusual for an organization our size where we are a reasonably big company. Um, but to have to have all tech roll into one office is an unusual thing to do. But that's what that's what we do because it works for us. Um, and so yeah, I I I do a lot of things uh, for CAI. But what this this topic, right? We're talking about kids and tech and things being dangerous out there. Um, this is actually something that is sort of lightly tied to my job, even though it's informal. When we run leadership forums and things like that, just the, the different communication channels to all of our employees, we throw a little bit of a blend together where a lot of it's about the business and how are we doing and what's our strategy and what's our direction. But some of us is also some, some content is just meant to help people at home too, right? We started that when the pandemic hit and was like, all right, you know, in, in my job, I'd be fortifying the company, if you will. Um, now everybody went home, so their routers that they bought at Best Buy are now the biggest vulnerability I have to worry about. And there were really two ways to think about solving that problem. One was just, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to issue containment and control around it, or we're going to try to make everybody a little bit smarter about making their home safer and, and get everybody's personal collection of technology up to the standards that we want as a company. So once we... Once we did that and that worked, then we sort of started pointing that same lens at, at other things. How do you, how do you make, how do you, how do you file your taxes a little bit safer and more responsibly online? How do you take care of your kids? How do you do all these kinds of things? So I get, I get the privilege largely because it's a privately held company, um, the privilege to structure a lot of that content. Uh, however, however I think is healthiest for the employees. And sometimes that's just talking about home and family. Give me an idea as the size of CAI. Uh, we have uh, 8,500 uh, employees in total right now. Um, we are predominantly U.S.-based, but certainly a global organization. We have offices around the world. But um, yeah, from a size standpoint, that's how big, that's how big CAI is. So it's a lot, of, a lot of people to keep safe. All right. And what is your official title there? I'm the chief technology officer for the company. Okay. Cool. So security and all of that for all the different products and services that CAI offers ultimately runs up through you. Yep. How'd you get that gig? That's pretty sweet. I, I'm a, I, I got to admit, I'm kind of, I'm almost not sure. <laughs> I think, <laughs> I think it, for me, I'm, I'm pretty sure it comes down to uh, the way that I interact with a lot of what are now my peers in industry. I feel like they make decisions about 
technology for their respective companies based on their silo, based on tech itself. And, and I look at it differently and say, there's really never a point where we do technology for the sake of technology. It's always for somebody else, right? Like even when we, even when we buy tools to make developers faster, that's just mm. so that they can get a product in the hands of finance or HR quicker. And the value is realized everywhere else in the company, not really in IT. We're, we're kind of weird in that regard that we're always serving someone else. And as I moved through the organization, I, I've been with CAI for 15 years. In those 15 years, this is the 10th job that I've had. Um, so on the way from start to here, I think my idea has always been we we need we need to prioritize what the business needs over what we want to do or what makes our job easier. And I think that's probably what got got me to this position because it made it easier for me to collaborate with my peers who lead the rest of the organization. And it's those relationships and getting along well that allows me to do my job well. So you have all these different customers and thousands of employees. Obviously, there's a lot of different conversations happening. But what are the conversations that bubble themselves all the way up to the top where you are? Like, what are people talking about? What are your peers talking about right now on a daily basis? Uh, my peers in the company or or outside the company, which do you mean? Or both? Either. Yeah, both. Yeah. So I'd say, I mean, one of the things that it doesn't matter where I go, uh, everybody wants to talk to me about AI, which is cool because mm -hmm. I like talking about it. So that one's fun. Doesn't I, I mean, even at home, that's what people want to talk to me about. So, <laughs> so that, one's a, that one's a common thread across absolutely everything. And um and then in, in most other pockets, um, the other thing that we end up talking about a lot is actually security and the way that the threat landscape has changed fundamentally just in the last couple months. So it's things like, I mean, we, CAI does a lot of business with, uh, with public sector, right? So state and local governments are a, are a common place to find us. And they are also the most significant attack factor for a foreign bad actor, right? It's the federal government's hard to go after because they've got more resources. They're better fortified, but a, a county in Virginia is a, is a lot easier target to go after. And so that's where they go. And so we're in the blast radius of all those attacks. So we're under attack all the time too, right? As a, as a vendor providing services, if they can break into CAI, it's a short walk to get into the actual target. So we end up talking about that a lot. We're under attack all the time. Um, we have a very good team that that fortifies and, and defends against those attacks really, really well. But what we've seen in the last couple of months is both the elaboration of those attacks, how sophisticated they are, how personalized they are, has increased dramatically. And mm. the volume of them has gone up at least 8x in that period of time. So we're just getting, we're getting bombarded more and the quality of attack is just so much higher. So we end up talking about that a lot. And I, I mean, I can give you what, in my opinion, is the most fascinating example so far mm -hmm. was uh, just a couple of weeks ago, I had one of the, one of the major software vendors that we work with that, that is a, you know, kind of a big back office application for us. They are headquartered in California and San Francisco. What the attacker ultimately did was to spoof a phone number from a church in Oakland, California, right? So correct correct uh, area code and everything as they're calling me on my personal cell phone, which I use at work. So that part of it wasn't weird. They had not knowledge of, but they made very well-educated guesses as to what's our platform, what are we doing, what's our billing mechanism, et cetera. Hit me with a message. This is a voice message to say, you know, I'm calling from this company. 
Um, your your invoice is past due. Your services are going to be disconnected if you don't pay. Percentage of the invoice. This is how we need to do it. What what got crazy though, because that that can happen all the time. They also made direct reference to my financial officer by name. We already spoke to him. He already authorized this. They knew all my peers. It was like they they were able to tell a story that said they had already talked to everyone that I would expect they should have talked to before they brought the problem to me. So they created a far more plausible scenario in order to try to get a corporate credit card number out of me. And historically, that that kind of an attack would have been very rare because it's expensive, right? The 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 entities that do this to us run like businesses. They have financial targets. They're not going to spend the time, money, and resources to research CAI, figure out who my peers are, identify everybody by name, get a handle on our probable technology stack, and then try to hit me for a credit card number. It just costs too much. But generative AI made it cheap and affordable, so now they can afford to do it nearly for free all the time. So the 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 barrier to entry for a high-quality attack has gone way, way down, and that means... <laughs> the defenses that we have to have against it have gone way up. It's been a just a sea change in the way that we think about how we have to fortify and defend ourselves. It's wild. Well, how do you respond to that? Mostly for us, we do it predominantly through education. I mean, we, we have high quality tools and we have a lot of them. So we're we're good at threat identification and everything else. We, we handle that fairly well, but um, it's more that, and, and it's not true just of us, it's true everywhere, more than 90% of successful attacks are exclusively due to human error and and practically have nothing to do with technology. So we're always on an education campaign with all of our employees. We try to make it as real as we can, as valuable as we can. And that's part of the reason that when we talk about something that they need to be aware of and protect themselves from, we don't just make it about keep CAI safe. We also make it about keep you safe, right? So operationally for your family, and, and I'd, I'd say this for you, for anyone else, because your voice can be spoofed, right? The president of my company has done multiple interviews and podcasts. His voice is out there, downloaded speechify.ai. I loaded some of his content into it. I can make it sound like him saying anything I want at this point. It's believable, it's plausible, and, and it's easy enough to spoof, a, a spoof rather a phone number. So I tell everyone, like, you need to have some kind of challenge question that you ask as soon as a conversation gets weird. We have to do that here at CAI, but you need to do it with your grandparents because that's also who they're going to go after. They're going to call. They're going to be able to sound like you and convince your grandma that you were in an accident and you don't have insurance to cover it. And if she won't pay for it, then you're going to die. And that's a successful, horrible, but true scenario that, that has been playing out for years. But now with the voice, voice aligned generative AI solutions, it's so much higher quality now. And so unreasonable to expect an older generation to be able to defend themselves against it without our help. So we try to, we, every time we try to educate the employees about this is what you need to be thinking about, we also try to make it about, think about it at home too. So I want you to keep your eyes peeled. And if you've already seen something, let me know. But I've, I've been thinking about this for, you know, well, my background was software engineering and then I started the podcast. So I've always kind of been looking at it. But before I did the uh, podcast, I was figuring out how to invest my money. I was like, I can go podcast or I can build um, some AI tools. And so I was getting excited about that space. And I started thinking even then, I said, wow, 
I can see where this is going to go at the time. And it was much more archaic seven years ago, right? You saw those generated mm -hmm. things then. I said, eventually someone's going, like we all ask this answer, challenge questions, relation. There's, there's all these different ways people look to solve it. I think a new technology is going to emerge. I don't know exactly what it is, but it's going to be a way to say, hi, I am me. And it's in a, in some way, shape or form because you know, when you're the president, say a president of a country, right? And you're giving a broadcast, how will you be able to authenticate that to a degree to where I know if I'm watching it, that it's, you know, authenticated or not? I think there will be some sort of authentication protocol, something that will exist. We'll be able to embed it in our live video streams. We'll be able to embed it in our podcast inside of our, you know, live conversations we're having with people, all of this. Have you seen anything out there that's that's trying to solve that yet? I haven't seen anything quite trying to solve that yet, at least not as broadly as you're describing it. It does feel to me like it might be a scenario where, you know, blockchain has been a perfectly good technology looking for a worthwhile problem to solve for a while. And maybe that kind of distributed ledger uh, identity validation is actually going to be part of how they do it. I've, I've seen some really neat tools that use blockchain um, and they and they do them almost like they're taking blockchain and they're creating what we would have thought of years ago as like a, a RAID five array, right? They're striping mm -hmm. all your data. They're they're putting it into a variety of both public and private distributed nodes, and um, and giving you the ability to do identity and authentication validations in multiple places that all have to agree. That feels to me like the closest that I've seen to what you're describing, but it's also a pretty limited specific scenario, right? Like that's just for companies that have incredibly high value IP that they need to be able to protect. And part of protecting it means fragmenting it and sending it everywhere. But it, that might, that might be kind of a, a place that this could land. I'd love to see it. I, I think it's tremendously important. And uh, I think it, it forces us to make that a, um, like a multi-factor at the human user location kind of a solution, right? We can't rely on point-to-point -point IP or even any of the other perfectly good security protocols that we used to use to try to pull something like that off. Even those are are vulnerable today when they didn't used to be. Yeah. All right. AI at home. You said you're, even people at home are asking you about AI. What type of conversations are coming up at the house? Yeah. Though, I mean, those ones are, those ones are neat. So I have, um, I have two daughters, a nine-year-old and an 11-year-old, and, and they're both as you might expect, uh, they're both fairly heavy technology users. There's a, there's a lot of stuff in our house for them to learn on and interact with. And, um, and I, have found a, a, a variety of ways that they're trying to leverage AI or they're interested in AI, um, that, that they bring home and want to talk about. A lot of it is really just like, you know, for my one daughter, who's a little bit more art oriented, um, generative solutions like Dolly 2 and those things. Mm. She's super fascinated with those. She wants to know how they work and um, she wants to be allowed to play with those. And, uh, and, and that's, you know, that's all fine. That's like a neat, a neat interaction point. But what I find a lot more compelling and interesting is my, my older daughter who she's very interested in, in chat GPT explicitly. And so mm. we, what, what, what my wife and I tend to do is, you know, they've, they're a, series of devices that my kids have access to and they're they're controlled in different ways and when she wants to use chat gpt there's only one laptop that she's able to access that on it's blocked on every other device that she can get to and i and i do that because i can't get a log of her interactions 
out of that application. So I need to be able to see it native on the machine. So the computer that she's using does monitor her use of it, which she knows. Um, and that, that, that's why she has to use that one. But it gives me a chance to see what kind of stuff is she trying to do with it. And during the school year, mm. she was really using it. I would have said, I argue, very appropriately. And she is, she's using it to get through a creative block. I've got to write a paper about the solar system and I'm not sure how to get started and I'm just kind of stuck. So she'd use it to get a first draft off the ground and then turn that into her own original work. So it was it was nice to see that without real coaching, she was still accidentally employing, employing some ethical use of AI principles to how she was interacting with it. What became a lot more interesting was that over time, as she was using it more for, for school and to, you know, to help, help generate new ideas for strategies and other video games that she's playing with friends and some stuff like that, she moved over to starting to ask it questions that I would have argued were appropriate for a therapist. Um, so my, mm -hmm. in, in full disclosure, my oldest daughter, uh, she's neurodivergent, um, which for anyone that doesn't know what that means, it's basically a, a very broad term to cover all neurological differences from a neuroatypical individual, or I'm sorry, a neurotypical individual. And that usually people think of autism spectrum diagnosis. That's the yeah. most common neurodivergency, but you know, there's also ADHD counts, anxiety disorders count, all those kinds of things are mm. part of being neurodivergent. She has multiple neurodivergencies. And so she needs access to a behavioral health therapist. Mm -hmm. um, where we live in the US, there are less than half of the number of them than we need. So, you know, we're waiting about nine months now to be onboarded wow. for a therapist. Where do you live? Uh, we live in Eastern Pennsylvania. Um, okay. So high, high population, but also high demand. And, and I, yeah. I'd say, you know, that problem is manifest, and I think it's an important one. It's manifest in two different ways in the U.S. There's rural communities where identification of a child who is neurodivergent um, is less likely to occur. They're just not as good at spotting it. There aren't as many, not as many screenings, and, and those kind of resources aren't in place. And then you've got populated areas, like where I am, where we're good at identifying those kids. But as a result, we have more kids that need to be serviced than we have people mm -hmm. who are qualified to service them. So there's a big deficit there. And so she's saying things to chat GPT, like, Hey, I, you know, the, the, a, a kid said this to me in school today and you know, what should I do? And, and, you know, she's kind of, she's making casual reference to bullying, things like that. The interesting thing about the interactions with chat GPT is they, I give open AI credit where it's due. They do try to mechanize a variety of blocks to prevent irresponsible use. Like it, you know, if you, ask it for medical advice, it tells you it's not a doctor and it, it, yeah. it basically refuses to answer. It's, it's designed not to help you rob a bank, all that kind of stuff. So when she started <laughs> her conversation, it, it kind of pushed back and it's like, I'm not, I'm not a psychiatrist or psychologist or however it identified. I, I'm not qualified to help you with this, but my daughter's pretty smart. So her whole thing was just, I'm going to write a story about a kid in school being bullied I'm going to play the role of the kid being bullied and you play the role of the teacher who's giving the kid advice. And then she just re-entered the conversation and gamed her way right through it. Brilliant. Um, so I like her already. <laughs> oh, I know. Yeah. I, yeah. She, she's easy to, easy to get along with, but what makes me nervous about it is on the one hand, I see it as a good thing. It was a, it was an outlet that let her feel comfortable articulating questions. She didn't want to ask her mom and I, 
but it still gave us some visibility into it. So it allowed us to help. The bigger thing I think is a big deal is it, it made me realize there's a real potential threat here that this excellent conversational technology that we've rolled out, I'm worried a lot of people would try to turn to it to fill a major supply shortage in behavioral therapy. And it's not a safe way to try to go get that help. I mean, it's not, it's not that it told her to hurt anyone or did anything malicious. It was just that the feedback that it gave was impractical to use or would have gotten her in trouble, right? So she's, she's laying out this scenario unfolding in class. The AI's advice is we should leave class. And like, it's just, it has ideas that aren't actionable because it doesn't well, have. I, I agree. I actually happen to agree with that idea. <laughs> <laughs> I'm kidding. Yeah, no. I'm not kidding though, but like we're, we're big fans of homeschooling. So we started homeschooling our kids and gave up that second income. But uh, yeah, it's, at, we had all these misconceptions and misunderstandings about homeschooling. But when we went on this trip around the U.S. for a year and the R, we got an RV, we went around the U.S. for a year and, and did a long camping trip. And then we're like, we, we think we could do it. And uh, uh, so our, our youngest son uh, has Down syndrome. So he'll be with us, you know, probably forever. Uh, mm -hmm. But so we, we made that decision to do the homeschooling with all of them. Yeah, it's it, would Down syndrome be a neurodivergency or is that something separate because it's a like in their DNA, you can tell it. I well, I think it still counts as uh, okay. as, as neurodivergent. Um, it, it because there is a neurological component to it. And the oh, way yeah, that we talk yeah. about it is any of the any of the neurodisses. That's <laughs> that's what counts. Um, so I would I would think it would be in the in the lineup as well. I, actually, no, I I know I I know it has to be because it's that's how we classify it. I've done work with Easter seals uh, okay. in the past, and that's they certainly service a lot of. Um, a lot of folks with Down syndrome, and that's the category that they're in. So it must be. Okay. Yeah. Where were we at, Josh? Got all excited about the neurodiver learning about neuro. I, that's the first time, by the way, in this in this interview is the first time I've ever heard that phrase. So learning. Yeah. Yeah. It's it's becoming a big one fairly quickly. But even even as we were getting services for my daughter, like it's just, I I came into it with a little bit bigger background because CAI actually has an arm of the company that is designed to place neurodivergent workers in sustainable oh. careers. Um, so oh, we're one really? Of the, yeah, we're one of the largest employers of technical neurodivergent resources in the U.S. Um, so that, that meaning a neurodivergent individual who's doing a technical job, like software testing, yeah. uh, RPA development, those kinds of things. We, we have a big focus on that. So I came in kind of already preloaded. I knew what was going on. And as we were talking to healthcare professionals for my daughter, uh, they were still talking neurotypical versus neuroatypical. And, um, yeah. and as we, as we got into it, the term neurodivergent came, became more and more prominent in the, in the services we were seeking. Yeah. That's funny. Cause as you're, as I'm learning more and getting exposed to it, I'm starting to think I've, I've had one friend who works He's he's paired up at HP, like in the office of the CXO or whatever. He's very very specialized in this one specific area, and mm -hmm. he's uh, socially just very different. And so they were like, "Hey, will you like come talk?" This was a decade ago. They're like, "Hey, will you come hang out with him? I want you to meet him. I want you to you know help translate." <laughs> <laughs> the yep. idea from a technical to a business side of things and to see if it's really there because we don't understand half the stuff that he's saying. And so I went I went through that. It was great, made a bunch of good friends and everything. But yeah, I like this way because it takes you from the perspective of, oh, which ism is it or which thing is it to just say, oh, they're neurodivergent. And that's just this easy 
it's like a social lubricant, right? It's this easy way to talk yeah. about it without worrying about the minor details of how uh, the scientists are classifying it. <laughs> yeah, I, I'm, a, I'm a fan of it because I think it, it resets the expectations in the conversation to mean that we're talking about an individual who is different from what you might expect, but that's, mm -hmm. that is unlike saying they are disabled. And, yeah. and especially, you know, as we're looking for opportunities to put a neurodivergent individual in a technical role where they're going to thrive, we're not, we're not just doing for fun. I mean, there are a lot of jobs where because a, a kid with autism spectrum, uh, for example, they're better at pattern recognition than I am as a neurotypical individual. There are lots of things that they can do faster than me, more effectively than me. Oh, yeah. There just needs to be a little bit of an accommodation for them so that we understand that, all right, they also have some light and sound sensitivity. They need to be allowed to wear a noise canceling headphones and they need to be able to dim their monitor. And everyone needs to just settle down about that. If you run into them in the break room, they don't, they don't understand and acknowledge social cues the way that you and I might. And therefore, if you just start talking about college football, they may never stop. If that's an, if that's a thing that they're interested in, they'll just keep going and to me, uh -huh. it would feel weird and rude to say to someone, hey, this is great, but I've got to go, sorry, and just walk out on a conversation. For them, that's not rude at all. They need that direct cue in order to know the conversation has to come to an end. Otherwise, they're just going to keep keep going on it. And it's you know, it's a big and tiring investment on them as well. Right? My daughter has that problem that if you, if you get her on a topic she really wants to get on, she believes very firmly that you're as interested in it as she is, which is probably an impossibility, but she's <laughs> going to keep talking about it. Even when she's, she's tired, she's run out of things to say. She interprets that interaction as, all right, I have a responsibility to this person's interest. I'm going to keep going until you literally explicitly tell her like this conversation's over, which sounds yeah. mean, but for her, it's just, it's what she needed to hear to be allowed to stop. Yeah. My dad is brilliant engineer. They put the GPS systems into the stealth bombers in the 80s and he learned everything from hardware and software and technical uh, through the Air Force. So he was really grateful for that. However, I noticed that he, you know, because I'm 35, 36 now. So you start to realize what your parents are when they were raising you. Like I, I'm probably my, I'm the same age. I was 10, right? When my dad was my age. And so, or whatever, however the appropriate way to say it is. But I could tell that when we would go to social events and things like that, he wouldn't be able to understand if the person's interested in the conversation, right? And he was a very technical person. So he would just start explaining microchips and sensors. And he's doing that to some you know, like venture capital person or something that has no idea they want to talk about their boat, right? And so not, not like there's anything wrong with that. Like we love boats, but it's just he, he couldn't pick up on some of those aspects. And so, and it, it was weird because it, it wasn't like there was a bunch of things to the point where you would say, oh, you know, it, it, it's a whole lot. He, it was literally like that aspect. And then he wouldn't look directly at someone's eyes when he's talking to them. He just kind of like looks off to the side. And I noticed that I was doing that a little bit. And I've talked about it before on the podcast. I built some uh, autism software when I, about 15, 20 years ago for a company that was doing it on paper. And so they said, hey, we want to digitize this. And through the act of me digitizing these tests that they, they do these worksheets with the kids every day, they submit them to the government to get the funding back. And they were in like education school, like private school. And I was looking at the, the test um, of the different 
reflexes, motor skills, all of that. And I realized, wow, I exhibit some autistic features, specifically the ones of when I'm talking to somebody, if I'm really interested in the conversation, I'll normally look down to the right and point my ear at you because I really want to hear what you're saying. But the inverse of that from that person is they're looking down in a way and they're uninterested. So now I'll actually tell people if I, if I really only notice my behavior doing that, when I'm going into a problem solving or if we were going to come up with a product and we needed to work on something very deeply, I'm fine in casual conversation, but if we really wanted to problem solve something, I might start to do that. So I've learned to actually tell people, hey, I might be looking down in a way, but that's because I'm really trying to listen hard to what you're saying. And so it was the act of me seeing what was in those because I, I believe that I picked up on a lot of those behavior cues just watching my dad, right? Just watching mm -hmm. him interact in society and then I carried those over and then now... I've learned to, you know, prompt people if I might, like if um, another one would be if if uh, we're working on a project together and I decide that I want to be really direct in my communication and I don't want to be super nice and do all of this stuff, I'll actually <laughs> like talk to you about like, is that okay? Can I be super direct and can we work through this as quickly as possible? And then that way I've learned I can set that context and then just do my thing and and it helps out a lot. Yeah, yeah. And I think, I mean, it's a it's a fascinating space because there's plenty of research in in particular with respect to autism where their early intervention uh, and a, and a, a kid who's you know five six seven if it's if it's able to be identified that early they they can learn their their neuroplasticity is still at such a degree that they can learn a lot of compensatory behaviors but they need to be able to see them and model them. And that for a lot of, for a lot of kids, that's going to be frustrating for other kids, other neurotypical kids that they're exposed to. So they don't get as much opportunity for that. And it's an area where I think this is something that we're not quite ready for technology to have an impact on yet, but we might be soon that, right. We, for them to be able to correctly model behavior, it needs to be behavior that can be generated and resolve for the uncanny valley, right? It needs to be believable. It needs to be understandable because they interpret so much of the guidance so very literally. So it kind of needs to be perfect in the way that you or I could have the patience to interact with them, really show them like you, they will notice that we are making eye contact, that we are focused on their engagement in the conversation. That's not something that we can simulate today, but I do believe it's something that we might be able to simulate tomorrow and that there might be an avenue to really help a lot of kids because, you know, at this point we're, we're identifying one in every 65 or so individuals is on spectrum. Um, that's a, that's a lot of kids who could benefit from a solution like that if it could be built. And now that computes cheap and capabilities are high, maybe it's something in our, in our fairly near term. I don't know. Yeah. I would not be surprised if we saw, if after this conversation we did a Google search and there's been a ton of VC-backed, specialized GPTs for healthcare-related, because it's that is the perfect uh, alignment, right? It's it's hard when you have to get physical tests done and samples and all of that, but when it's just knowledge work type uh, counseling, psychology, you can identify so much from just a video feed, right? They could have a a structured conversation and then through that conversation pick up on areas of interest and then explore those farther. Yeah, I think that. Um, those GPTs will be really, really interesting. Do you know when we're not going to start calling it GPTs anymore? Because it's that's general purpose technology. So if we're going to talk about some specialized tool that will help people that are neurally diverse, you think GPT is just going to stick as a, 
as a phrase because it's marketed so well and it's become common knowledge? Or do you think we'll have like, is there a word for when it's specialized purpose technology, SPTs? I think, well, I don't know. I mean, I, I'd say probably my expectation is a lot of people are trying to cling to the, those three letters right now just because chat GPT is absolutely everywhere and you can't get away from it. So blank GPT automatically sounds like it's right and it's modern and it's, um, it's innovative. So people are clinging to it in a way that's not actually value oriented. As we see some niche solutions roll out, I think they'll, they'll be able to be individually branded and, and independently branded, right? Like we're just at the point right now where this is, this is an explosion. It's, it's not, it's, it's not radically different from the discovery of fire and mm -hmm. we're figuring everything out really quickly right now is eventually it's going to become commonplace and table stakes for absolutely everything. So we won't even, I think we won't even be referencing it anymore, at least not directly in another year or two. I mean, why, why would we, that, that, that this particular craze that we're in will probably be over and we'll have moved on to real actionable, pragmatic deployments where right now, mm -hmm. at least with everything that I'm interacting with, it's all cool. It's fun, but the actual deployments and use cases of generative technologies are few and far between, right? We're, we're, mm -hmm. we're getting there, but most of it's all just fun experiment right now. Like look, look how neat it is that I can make it do this. Okay. That is neat, but, but why, you know, how's, how will that help your company grow? For example, there aren't, there aren't a lot of those really purpose-driven yet, but there will be soon. There's a lot of work going on in that space right now. So there will mm -hmm. be many soon, but not yet. Has CAI ever worked on any parental control style technology? We have not, or at least I, sh I shouldn't say we have not. I have not been involved in it. We, we do an awful lot of things. So yeah, you know, it's, it's very possible eight, that a 9, pocket of the company people. could yeah. have done something <laughs> that I don't know about, um, but I, not, none to my knowledge. That's been, that would, that would probably be a little bit more closer to the consumer than most of our work usually is. So I wouldn't expect it. I'm curious, what are your thoughts? Have you thought about that at all? You're a smart guy, you're in technology, you understand how you can currently block stuff. You have kids that are entering that age group. What are you thinking about all of that? Yeah. I mean, for me, I, I'm, I'm not, I'm not only looking at it in terms of the content that they have access to, which I do heavily regulate and control. Believe me, you talk to either one of them, they'll tell you all about that. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, they, they don't love it, but we also really regulate the, the timing of their access, right? So we have a lot of granular control over their devices. Their total time on screen per day is, is, is automatically managed. Their time that they are able to do particular activities, right? So if they're if they're listening to an audiobook, that's going to be a different time limit than if they're playing Roblox or they're doing something else. Every everything on there, we, we have iPads, and I'm I'm not here to evangelize for Apple, but we chose them because of the level of control that they gave us, and we exploit that pretty heavily. But I really I don't I, I think it's a it's a combination of I don't want them on screen all the time, even though my kids are nerds and and they probably deserve a little bit more screen time than the average kid. I'm not letting them have it. And then it, with respect to their content, that's why in certain circumstances, I block content except on each of the laptops that they have been issued because yeah. I can put an agent on the laptop that basically uses the same kind of exploits that a lot of IP theft technologies do, where if I wanted to be able to, there, there's plenty of admittedly illegal, but functional apps out there that will allow you to capture protected movie content or whatever yeah, yeah, uh, yeah it just yeah. records it at the at the screen level so that's 
that's the way that I can use a comparable agent to say, all right, I see what you're doing on this device in this application live and in this moment, and I, I want it or I don't. And it gives me a little bit of room to maneuver and tweak some of that. That's why ChatGPT is only on that laptop, for example. Um, but that's as close as we've gotten. And I've kind of been counting on Apple or someone else to, at the, at the mobile OS level, start solving this problem a little bit more than they do right now because it, it's, it's significant and, and it's, uh, it, it's more than a little bit dangerous. And I worry about it as well in that my, I end up because I'm the, you know, you, you, I'm sure you're in the same boat. Um, I'm, I'm the IT help desk yeah. uh, at home <laughs> for everybody that knows what my job is. So I end up interacting with most of my kids' friends' parents um, because I'm either observing what I believe is a problem in their kids' use because I can see it through my kids' interactions with them. And I just want them to know. Or at, at some points, we're even just, I'll end up going to my kids' elementary school and just, all right, if parents need to do a workshop and figure out how to lock down their iPads a little more, I'll help because um, the school's not prepared to do that. But, you know, any, anything like that. What I worry about is all the parents who think this problem's already solved. I, I, yeah. More than half of them that I talk to, the answer is, I don't need to do that. That's why I bought an iPad. It's done already. I, I promise you it's not. <laughs> but, but that's what they think. And, and I don't think that's Apple maliciously marketing or anything. I don't see any evidence of that. I think it's just pure misunderstanding and it's, it's, it's dangerous. I understand it. Right. I mean, not, not everybody has the benefit of the level of technical experience and education that we have. So of course they don't understand what that thing is doing. And of course, this is another example where their kids are going to be smarter than them very quickly at a very young age before they're mature enough to be safe and responsible on their own, right? Like my daughter can do a lot of things that a lot of adults can't. And yeah. we're also still sculpting her into someone who will hopefully make safe and responsible and ethical choices. But all by herself, she is not that person yet. Like, she's on the right trajectory, but that you can't expect that of an 11 year old. No, she doesn't even get to decide what she's having for dinner. That's, that's I know. I know. It's look, it's our job as parents. There are little AI algorithms. We need to make sure we know what data goes in. We need to course correct them with our human in the loop training. <laughs> yeah. And then we need to get them to the point where they can mature to that point where they can make decisions for themselves. That's that's our job. Yeah. yeah I, I agree with you. They're growing up just like ML ops, right? If yeah. I'm if they're they're deploying reinforcement learning whether I like it or not. So if I'm not influencing that model, they're going to turn into psychopaths. That's just, that's yeah. what we've seen. Yeah. Yeah. So it's, why, why do you care so much? What, what is it about you and, and your wife and your values? Like, why did you guys decide to, it's, it's not easy. It's a lot of work, man. It's a work to set these tools up. It's work to monitor them. I mean, it's hard. The last thing, you know, we want to do at the end of the day after putting the kids to bed and dishes and dealing with, you know, just everything that is life to sit down and read that report Amazon sends us of this is what your kids have been consuming the past week. Like, where do you guys get your drive to do that and why? I mean, I think it's, there is a, an innate sense in both of us that, you know, we, we chose for lack of a better way to say it, we chose to make these people and we are responsible for the people that they're going to become. So mm -hmm. at, at the very basic level, that's how I see it. I look at their, their ages and their social situations. And, and my interpretation is I'm not able to be their only point of influence. So if I can affect 
some of the other points of influence in their life positively, then that's really in service of my mission to have them grow up to be good, decent human beings that are going to help other people later. Um, so that's, I guess that's really the biggest part of my motivation, but I'd say it's twofold, right? Like I want to, they're my daughters. I want to keep them safe. I want to protect them. I, I want them to grow up into good and happy adults, but I also have to recognize now that the explosion of AI that's happening right now is good. It, I have every confidence it's going to mean that they're going to enter a workforce that looks completely different from the workforce that I entered. And I need to be on top of it from their perspective and for their sake to help guide them at all. Because it just, my, the lessons that I have learned, getting out of college, going to grad school, doing everything else, like, that's just, I don't, I can't believe it's going to be relevant to them. So I need, I need to, I need to kind of recreate the playbook, if you will, because um, my past experiences aren't going to count. I fully agree. We've been struggling with that. Our six-year-old's been asking for a YouTube channel. And I can't sit there in the house and on the property we live in that's all paid for because we make content online <laughs> with the production company I own where we charge people to make content for them online and say you can't have content online. It's But at the same time, I tell my wife, I was like, well, yeah, but also if we owned an alcohol company, we wouldn't let her be drinking just because we make and distribute alcohol, right? right. So I was like, there, there'll be a time and a place that we'll, we'll know it's right. I go, probably when she gets to the point where she can operate a camera and do all the work versus us trying to like help her do it all. If she can do it all and she wants to run and, and she's of a certain mindset, when she gets to that point, we'll know it. Then we can have the conversation again. But I, we were thinking like right now, we don't want to be the enablers of like pushing them or, you know, allowing them to do that because, you know, that's one of the big reasons why there, there's so much technology in their lives. It's one of the reasons why we moved out to a more rural area is so that, you know, every day they can be outside and be in the woods and, you know, walk around the property and see animals. And and because the future, I think, is going to be less and less of that. I think it's going to be a funny full circle when the rural poor people will have ended up in hindsight living like kings because they can be outside and because they can be around the animals and all of that. Yeah. I mean, we're, we live in a comparable situation. We, we live in a very rural location. Um, it's, you know, it, it's a 15 miles to the nearest gas station for me. Okay. So we, yeah. we, we're, we're reasonably remote. And because of that, I think the, the consequence that I'm experiencing, particularly with my 11 year old is that means that for her to socialize in the way that her peers who live in town get to socialize, it pushes her onto platforms more than, mm. than, uh, than, than it otherwise would because the face-to-face -face interactions are, are impractical due to our location. So, you know, she's sort of, she's stuck in this little bit of a damned if you do, damned if you don't type of scenario where, yeah, I, I like many of the benefits that living where we do afford her. And yet they have added consequences that kind of push her toward the devices that I'm trying to protect her from at the same yeah. time. And it, motivates me to find more ways to let her use them because she needs to have friends, she, especially for, for a kid on spectrum, she needs all the socialization practice she can get all the time that every, every minute that I take away from her being able to be in a, in a chat or, you know, just live streaming in a, in a video game that she's playing with one of her friends, I'm taking away important neurological development when I do that. And so I can't, I can't strip her of it. I can't rob her of it at the same time because she's got access to these platforms. And even though we're monitoring them and everything, I, I, I know what my future looks like. You just described it a few minutes ago. 
she's going to start finding ways to game it and try to outsmart me. And then we're going to be in a pretty adversarial situation. I think to date, I probably fear monger a lot that when I'm, when we're talking to her, she's more aware than her friends. She educates many of her friends on some of the risks of things that they do online. Uh, you know, of the, of the fact that when they get into when her friends rather not because she can't get into them, but when her friends get into chat rooms where there's no validation of identity in there, like, you know, one of those could be an adult and they could have ill intent. And she's telling her friends that, and I, I, you know, I know they minimally believe her, but she at least has the right perspective to be, to be worried about that, to, to keep herself on the outside of it. I don't know if I've gone too far, but I hear, I get to overhear and I get to witness a lot of the conversations that she has with some of her friends when she's making points like that, she's usually right. And, you know, she's, she's old enough now she's in middle school. So I have the other horror scenario where a lot of her friends have cell phones. Um, you know, there's on a fairly regular basis during lunch, teachers are, are breaking up photo sharing circles and she's, she's at least smart enough that the, the mantra that stays in her mind is the internet is forever. And she knows yeah. Like, yeah, you're sure you're, you're give you're making a bad enough decision, deciding Sally to give that to Henry. But what you don't appreciate Sally is you can't take it back from Henry and you can't stop where he's going to put it next. And yeah. that she at least appreciates the risk of the long-term consequences there. I don't, I just don't know how to make, make more kids appreciate that kind of thing. Right. And, and well, I guess, just... yeah, they're kids. The, the, the brighter a spotlight I shine on it, the more I know I'm making them want to do it. Well, she has the built-in advantage of you being her dad. I mean, yeah. that's something that many of the other kids look, when I did that research, it was a little bit sad how <laughs> little parents care about how they, how little they even think about the content that they're consuming. They'll buy a tablet and it'll say kids safe technology on it. They're like, oh, the kids are going to be safe on it here. Then click a browser and look at anything they want to look at. Yeah. It's like you have to enable the technology and you have to monitor and you have to set it up. And even then it's only so good. So yeah, I've seen studies, recent studies that validate a lot of what you're talking about right now. Uh, you know, questionable data sets. I don't know who they're surveying, but you know, they're, they're finding results like it was 70% of parents who do not monitor or regulate usage of technology in any way, right? They're buying stuff, they're giving it to their kids, but then they're just, they're just letting them go. And a lot of that, in a lot of those scenarios, right, that, that iPad has become the parent. And I don't, I can't imagine a scenario in which if we contextualize that, contextualize that a little differently, anybody would be comfortable with it, right? We just, we've got this weird soft spot for, for kids and tech because it, it quiets them down. It makes the immediate moment of managing them easier. And, and as a, you know, as a parent who needs to coach soccer, needs to go to work, needs to get grocery shopping done, needs to make dinner. Yeah. Like any, anything I can take off my plate feels good in the moment. Well, that's just something I don't think I can take off of my plate, even though it's the easiest thing to jettison. Yeah. Well, and then there's the idea that some of that content when used appropriately, educational content's better than an Ivy League education in the 70s. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's just by the, it's so visually explained, so simply and condensed and refined. So when we look at it from an education perspective, we don't, while it does all those benefits to our lives as parents, it also benefits the children uh, when they're consuming the right content. And so I think we'll see a huge shift in the next five years from this idea of, Right now, the only system we have is like the uh, the 
MPAA or the, the TV ratings, TV7. or yeah. And that's very binary. Is there a breast or a F word or whatever? And it's that system's uh, maxed its capacity because the next phase that we'll experience is value-based phase. It's how can I sit down, Matt, with an AI and train it. These are my values. This is what I believe. This is how I want to raise this kid. Because honestly, how I'm going to raise children, child A is different than child B. You have two kids, you get it, right? So it, so I want to be able to customize and talk with and explain. And then I want it to identify and report back and bring the right things to my attention and you know be smart and intelligent in that way. Um, the problem is that the current setup is not designed for that at all because it's actually designed for the opposite. Like I could hardly ever imagine that technology being on an Apple device because of how locked up their systems are. It can be done on the on the uh, Android type devices, but it's almost as if part of the ecosystem from security is at odds with being able to have complete and total tr- control at the screen level. But that's also what we need for our children. So it's going to be interesting to watch how it how it plays out. Yeah, and and as an advocate for security, I'm stuck in this really weird position where like like <laughs> yeah, I mean like as adults, I'm going to want them to have that protection on that device that exists today as children i i really you're right i really need the opposite but i want them to i want them to grow up with this tech so that they're comfortable and familiar with it and performant as adults and it, it, it's it's a tough it's a tough situation to be in i mean i think the reality is I, i'm not no matter how hard i might want to try i'm not going to be able to protect them from everything so what i really no. need to do is just know what situations are you in? How are they unfolding? And how can I help you make the best decision that you can right now? Because at some point, no matter what, if, when they're 15 or when they're 20, they're just, they're going to be done with me and they're going to be out of my control and they're either going to be feral and dangerous or I'm going to have done an okay job. And at the moment, yeah. I don't know which it is yet. Probably a little bit of both. <laughs> oh, yeah, well, yeah. <laughs> no, but, and then, but as they get older, you bring up a whole, an, another point, like you and I struggle with the problem right now. Here's my phone right now. This is the screen. I own this device, Matt. This is not Apple's device. This is not Verizon's device. This is Joel Beasley's device, right? This is, I own it. I don't have much control though over what pops across the screen. I can be going about my daily life and advertisers can inject whatever they feel necessary to inject. Social media companies can design stories and narratives and display them to me however they want to. And so we've completely, I would argue that we have relinquished control of what content hits our subconscious to a large degree. If this were you and me and we were, you know, on a telegraph back in the 70s, 60s or 50s or whenever the telegraph popular and we were having this conversation from my farm to yours, right? The, the information that could enter our house was the books that we intentionally purchased and put on the shelves. That's what our kids could consume or the three radio stations or the three TV stations, right? And so the amount, the vector of information consumption was really tight and highly controlled. Now it's the wild, wild west out there. So I want control. Like, I don't want to see stories about dead celebrities in my feed. I don't care what side I'm on. I want the system to know that about me, to see that information before I see it, and to blur it out. Now, maybe I can tap on it and see it if I really wanted to and unblock it. But I don't want these companies deciding my diet of content anymore. And that's what we do because they all decide the diet for us. And I want to put the control back in the people's hands. And I think we could do that, you know, with lower level operating system based technology. 
Yeah, no, I agree. And I, I think you're right. You're right about them making the decisions about the diet. And we've also, societally, we've accepted that they're having a sit down to a buffet that we never get to leave. Right. I don't, I don't yeah. even know. Cause I I'm, I'm at least at the point where I can ignore the fact that my phone has tried to get my attention probably three dozen times since we started talking. I have no control over the velocity of those pushed interactions as well as control over the content. I, I hate both of those factors. And, and I, I look at that and say, well, what right do any of us have to be surprised by the fact that anxiety disorders are up exponentially? Like, mm. of course they are. How, how could they possibly not be right? It ta it takes, it takes a certain will to make a conscientious decision that says, I know something important could be going on that my phone is trying to tell me about, but statistically speaking, I'm aware that that probability is extremely low and I'm not going to let it demand my attention. Most of the folks that I work with, that I interact with parents, kids that I get to meet, they, they can't pull that off. It doesn't mm -hmm. matter that we're having a conversation good, bad, or indifferent. As soon as that phone makes a noise, they, they have to look at it. They can't get away from it. And it's that, I mean, all the way to the point that there are studies of, uh, phantom experiences, like people oh, yeah. normally have their phone in their left pocket and they're used to it vibrating mm -hmm. and they take it out and they still feel it. Like, of course they do. It's. And when it, they want it to ring, they can anticipate it and make that feeling happen. Yeah. Incredible. But yeah, I mean, so it's all the evidence I think we need that the conveniences that we want and that we now have do have a consequence and a side effect. And, and that is a, a, an implicit neurological impact on all of us. I have a 72 hour experiment you can run. I challenge you to do it. Three years ago, I had a neuroscientist that studied technology and addiction on the show and he recommended it to me. I did it and it's been, I've stuck with it for three years now. Uh, so what I did was you take your phone and you configure your do not disturb settings. You black your entire phone out and then you only let through like your wife, your kids, and you only let notifications come through for text message and phone call from people who are whitelisted. And I like, it's amazing. I really quickly figured out I had to add the calendar. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah, you are, you are kind of describing my default state, mm -hmm. though. Like the default ringer on my phone is silent. So if you're yeah. not my wife, my boss or my daughter, when it when just, you call, yeah. I don't hear it on purpose. Yeah, I just noticed I was picking up my phone like so, so much. And so I finally was like, you know what? I want I control you phone. Like right. I tell you when I'm interested to see what you've got to tell me. You don't tell me when there's something. And uh, have I missed stuff? Yes. Have I missed a handful of things over these three years? Yes. But I guarantee the benefit of it is far outweighed any cost of missing something. Mm -hmm. I, yeah, 100%. I, have, I have no doubt. Yeah, because you, because I, I got depressed. I looked at my screen time. It's like you picked up the phone two hundred and seventy-eight times today. I was like, whoa. Mm -hmm. That's when I knew I had a problem. <laughs> Yeah. Like, yeah. 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 When I'm getting notices like, you know, your, your screen time was down last week and you were, you were only active on the screen for 88 hours last week. So it's way yeah. down. Like, What's wrong with you? God. Where have you been? Come on yeah. into the matrix, Matt. Where have you yeah. been? Oh, dude. Well, this was great. This was super casual conversation. I didn't get to like most of the notes. Uh, I like you a lot. Well, we made a podcast. We'll wrap it up there. So thank you so much for doing this, Matt. Yeah. Thank, thanks for the opportunity. This was a lot of fun. 
Thank you so much for listening. And if you found this episode useful, please share it with a friend or a colleague who you think would get value from it. And if you have topics that you'd like to hear discussed on the podcast, either add me on LinkedIn or send me an email, joel at moderncto.io. Every time I get an email or LinkedIn message, it absolutely makes my day and inspires me to keep going.